Talks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come hear the animal, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Sarah Beckler-Davis, a primatologist and lawyer who is president and CEO of Project Chimp, a relatively new chimp sanctuary in northern Georgia. She has a long resume of working with chimpanzees, dating back some 20 years, reflecting a passion that began when she read a book about Jane Goodall as an 8-year-old and decided she wanted to do the same thing. This precocious path led to, among other developments, earning a graduate degree in primatology and later heading the Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest as its first executive director. Less predictably, that path also included going to law school and becoming a non-practicing attorney. After some other stops on that path, she's now leading a new Chimp Sanctuary, a career move she initially resisted. We'll trace much of that path and hear some fine points of working with chimps. Like when they arrive at a sanctuary, the process of how you introduce them to each other and to the larger group. When I play back my interview with Sarah Beckler Davis in a few moments here on Talking Animals. Before we get into that conversation with Sarah, I'm going to play a song that seems like a fitting prelude. It's by Harry Murrah, an accomplished musician and past guest on Talking Animals, who himself was drawn to chimps and other great apes, spent times at various sanctuaries recording their vocalizations and then incorporated those sounds into an album he composed called I Am, I Am. Here's the title track, I Am, I Am, music from Harry Mira on Talking Animals. Leave my family 
That's Harry Murrah with I Am, I Am from his album of the same name, which leads us rather nicely, I think, into the interview I recorded with Sarah Beckler Davis, the primatologist attorney and CEO of Project Chimps here on Talking Animals. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. So I launched the show in 2003, and darn near every week, it seems, I'm interviewing a primatologist with a PhD who's also a lawyer. So here we go again. <laughs> well, okay, just kidding, of course. But in, my, in fact, in my experience, that's a pretty singular academic background, and I want to explore that in some detail. But first, a question that may lead us there. What first fascinated you about chimps? Well, I uh, read about Jane Goodall when I was in the fourth grade in my grammar book, and I first, I don't know what it was, but for some reason I was just stuck at that moment and uh, have been on the beeline pretty much ever since. So just reading that book at that age is like, hey, I want to do what she's doing? Yeah, it was just sort of like, well, this is this is what I've been waiting for, and uh, now I know what to do with my life at, at age eight or whatever. <laughs> but why, I'm sure you've thought about it, if not while you were eight, subsequently one or more times, I mean, what struck you as an eight-year-old about what Jane Goodall was doing? You know, I think I think the connection for me has always been that they're so similar to us that they, these beings are are you know our closest living relatives, um, and we can look into their eyes and and really see ourselves looking back. Um, but something about that, you know, there is there is a difference there, right? And um, there's something there for me that's always just really kind of captivated me in terms of how how similar we are, um, but at the same time, how different. So. Once that happened as an eight-year-old, and you said, hey, from that point forward, it was just me and chimps, how did that actually play out? I mean, I could see how you, once you got to college, but I mean, were there mm -hmm. steps along the way, maybe not as a, even a nine-year-old maybe, but I mean, some point time after right. that, where you thought, okay, here's the steps I'm taking that I can take to get me closer to what Jane Goodall does and what has inspired me? Yeah, I, I mean, I followed a couple paths. So um, I went to, as soon as I was done with high school, I went and spent a year in 
in East Africa, which is where um, Dr. Goodall did her research Mm -hmm. um, and still has a field site there. So I got to see chimps really where they belong in the wild. And um, it was sort of this movie moment of coming around the corner um, on a trail and, you know, in the jungle in Africa and seeing Fifi, who was this very famous chimp in in Dr. Goodall's book, um, just sitting there termite fishing. And um, and I was, you know, still a kid, but 18 at that point and um, really just thought, you know, I, I couldn't do any better in my life than, than that, um, that that moment, you know, just seeing them where they belong. Um, and then I went back to the U.S. and went to school uh, to learn how to take care of them, basically. So I did a lot of research when I was in high school for finding programs that would allow undergraduates to actually do kind of some of the hands-on care that I really wanted to do, not just the academic stuff. And I found a program in Central Washington State um, at Central Washington University, which at the time was really the only primate program that allowed undergraduates to really take part in in captive chimpanzee care. Um, so that's where I, I shipped off to and um, ended up staying for graduate school there too, because I really, I just wanted to keep keep um, these relationships that I had developed with the chimps who lived there. As an undergrad, what was your major then? What was your degree as an undergrad there at Central Washington University? I had a split uh, major or double major with anthropology and primate behavior. Okay. And then presumably as you moved on to grad school, was it more specifically geared for primate studies? Or? Yeah. My my focus was on um, chimpanzee caregiver relationships in grad school, so that's that's what I um, I you know studied and investigated and reported on was um, the relationships between chimps and their caregivers. And in grad school, were you first pursuing a master's, or did you just jump right into saying, "Hey, you know what? Uh, this is what I'm doing, and I'm going all out, so I'm going to pursue a PhD." I actually I just got a master's, so I I stopped at the master's level, um, and I I did that because I um, sort of didn't want to get too too far into the weeds in academia and mm-hmm. realized sort of while I was in grad school that I um, I, I wanted to go out and do stuff. <laughs> yeah. And then did you circle back to more schooling once you did have the practical experience that you were seeking? or I did. A couple of years later, I went to law school. Um, right. So I, no, I well, considered... yeah, we'll get to that. I guess I, I guess I had thought there was even more on the academic path in primatology or primate behavior than it sounds like maybe there was. So maybe I just maybe I just No, assumed. I cut out after, um, after my master's degree. Yeah, you slacker. So instead, all you just went to is uh, <laughs> law school. So, um, right. so all kidding aside, so you're enthralled about studying primates, and you have been since you were a little kid, and then you pursue that undergrad, you pursue that as a master's, and then how or why did law school figure into all this? <clears throat> well, after grad school, I took a job working undercover and investigated the, um, the, the chimpanzee training industry in Los Angeles, and that job in itself sort of took a took a life of its own and uh, ultimately resulted in a lawsuit that um, that saved the chimps who are in this guy's care who I had been investigating um, and that really inspired me working with the attorney who 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 figured out that lawsuit and, and put it into play inspired me to go to law school um, really to add more tools to my tool belt I never really thought that I would practice or I wasn't sure if I would but I really felt strongly that I, I wanted that training and those tools to be a better advocate for chimpanzees so at that point in your life uh, with the undercover investigating and earlier it sounded like from kidhood through uh, most of if not all of grad school it was like I want to care with, for chimps I want to be with chimps I want to study them learn from mm-hmm. them. But then it sounds like something was a slight detour from that into the undercover investigation. But then in your mind somewhere you thought, I may be more on the advocate activist side 
And to do that more effectively, I want to have a law degree. Yeah, I mean, I think there, my initial plan when I went to college actually was that I would kind of get chimps out of my system and, and play with them and make friends with them. And then I would be a kindergarten teacher. That was my, my backup plan. And I, I joke that now my backup plan is I will be a lawyer. <laughs> right. um, but, um, but I, you know, there, there isn't, there is a wonderful career in taking care of captive chimps. But there, at the time when I was sort of first on the job market, there weren't a lot of jobs in sanctuaries. There, there weren't really a lot of sanctuaries yet. So I sort of had the I had the choice of go do something else, go back to my kindergarten plan, or sort of work on the, the policy advocacy side of things. I see. So it was as much about where can I go with my love and passion for chimps at the moment as... Exactly. Yeah, I got you. Okay, let me let folks know this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Sarah Beckler-Davis, the president and CEO of Project Chimps, a relatively new chimpanzee sanctuary in northern Georgia, though she has a long resume working with chimps, including running a previous sanctuary. This conversation was recorded on December 16th. Okay, so you finished law school, and so now you know a bunch about uh, chimps and other primates, and you know a fair amount about the law. So then what happened? After law school, I took a job as the executive director of Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest. It's its first executive director. So we had no chimps yet, and we had sort of a, a shell of a building, but a, a deal for chimps um, to be on their way a few months later. And I um, worked with a team to really build that organization up to the point where we could accept the chimps and to, um, to, to flourish as a, a small nonprofit. I guess one of the key questions then and there, I guess, is where, once the, the chimps did come, where were they coming from? The chimps at Chimp Sanctuary Northwest came from a company called the Buckshire Corporation and they were in Pennsylvania. So we moved them from Pennsylvania to Washington State. They had, um, Berkshire had used them, uh, had um, sort of leased them to other facilities for research over the course of their lives, but didn't do actual research themselves. So they were sort of a middleman during the heyday of chimp research. Like a clearinghouse. Mm -hmm. So how readily did they, I mean, since they weren't really doing the research, were they? what prompted them, I guess, at, at that point to say, okay, well, you guys can take them because we're not we're not doing anything more with them at the moment. At that point, the that that big heyday had really come to an end, and so there were there were chimps around the country who needed somewhere to go, who could go if, if you know anyone was available or space was available. So these seven who went to us in Washington were the last seven that Buckshire had owned, and they were waiting for sort of the right facility or the right sanctuary opportunity for placement. Um, they had placed some chimps at other facilities over the years, and these were the the last seven who still needed somewhere to go. I see. And and so how long then were you running the uh, the chimpanzee sanctuary in Northwest? I was there for about five years. And then was there just a natural time to say, hey, um, I'm still interested in chimps, but I want to do something else with my love of chimps? Or what? Yeah, I, I think um, to some extent I'm, I'm sort of a, a birther personality. So um, I, I love launching and developing uh, projects. And I think I, I hit a point where I felt like someone else could maybe be doing a better job than me. Mm. <laughs> um, but for the most part, uh, I needed to move just sort of for my family. We needed to move out of the very rural area that we were living in. Um, so not a lot of job opportunities and um, and stuff like that. So um, so it was sort of a combination of it just it just felt like the right time. And yeah. it was very, um, you know, it was it was all happy. And, and I still go back and visit the chimps and, and the humans there um, with, with lots of love. So over those five years, right, you said you were running. A, uh -huh. What were the three biggest lessons you learned there about chimps and or about chimp sanctuaries? 
during your time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, the my favorite lesson about chimps in sanctuaries is that they they get better and they they come out of research or pet ownership or the entertainment industry or any kind of of industry where they're used, they come out of it with a lot of stories, right? And they, they, they can't necessarily tell us those stories, but we can see from their behavior or, um, or how they are is that, you know, maybe there, maybe there are some stories in there that, that weren't so happy. Um, but giving them choices and giving them people who exist for no other reason than to make them happy and giving them opportunities to really be chimps really facilitates them and their recovery from that, whatever those stories are in their past. And it's really humbling to be a part of that and to watch them grow. And, you know, for many, many chimps in sanctuaries, that's their first opportunity of their lives to really be chimps, to really just, you know, their only job is to be a chimp and they can, you know, give it whatever natural behavior they would like to give us, you know, whether that's displaying or banging or playing or anything in between. Um, and, and just doing that and giving, creating the circumstances in which they can make those choices and really be chimps. You see this sort of, um, recovery in front of you where they, they, they figure out who they are and they become who they are. And it's, it's really amazing to watch that happen. Yeah. Well, I would think some of that might be foreshadowed by the, the, some of the videos that those of us don't get to hang out at chimp sanctuaries have seen where chimps are brought in from in many cases what was a pretty awful life of being experimented on and being in like cement slabs and whatever and this whole it's almost cliche but it's still so moving that i think that transcends the cliche thing but just when they first feel like grass under their feet Mm -hmm. or when they're just out Mm -hmm. out, outside at all and just you know yeah this kind of one yeah yeah that's that's a story that we see a lot in the sanctuary community sometimes it's this beautiful heartwarming moment where they're hugging and you know climbing trees and doing all those things that we would love to see them do sometimes unfortunately due to their lives and what they've become used to those big open spaces or trees to climb or grass to walk on aren't necessarily a really exciting thing for them (laughs) and freaks them out in some cases is right or yeah, yeah yeah they've lived in little boxes their whole lives many of them um so it's it's surprising and and part of our work in the sanctuary community is you know getting them comfortable and confident in themselves enough to welcome those new experiences rather than be fearful of them i think from other sanctuaries and folks i've talked to other things it seems like one of the things that's often important is how they're well either depending on how they were released to begin with but then how they're brought to that sanctuary and how they're introduced either to each other Mm -hmm. or chimps that were already there before. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the sort of just the social dynamic that goes with that Mm -hmm. and how just like the rest of us on chimps don't get along and uh, exactly how that works? Yeah, it's it's quite an art and um, I have seen it happen. I am not the I'm not the expert in this regard. And at Project Chimps, we have a staff member. um, We call him the Chimp Whisperer. His name is Mike Series. And he um, that's his full time job is to kind of get to know the chimps and figure out who might like who, what, you know, what groups can we put together and, and how that will look. But like you said, similar to if, if I just dropped you into a room with a stranger, you may or may not like that stranger. Right. Yeah. And it's the same, it's the same way with chimps. And then you add that, add to that fact that they are much stronger than us and um, much sturdier than us. And there's a lot of physical aggression in their natural behavior. So you have to go very carefully. There's a, there's quite a process to it in terms of kind of letting them see each other before uh, a pair who you're trying to put together. You let them see each other before you're putting them in the same space. Then you get, let them get a little closer. 
then you let them kind of touch each other through the mesh, but not not directly. And then once you sort of see the signs that they're they're liking each other, then you open the door and let them together. And that's a, a long and tedious process because it happens, at least with Project Chimps, it happens pairwise. So all of the possible pairs have to be introduced to each other before you can get the whole group together. Um, and the way we're receiving groups of chimps, they're, they're divided by sex. So all the females arrive together and the males arrive together separately. And um, so we're sort of right now at Project Chimps in the process of figuring out how to mix them into more natural groups. So this whole this process, you say, starts with pairs, and then they're all cross-checked as pairs, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And then what is the size, optimal size group of pairs that can still hang together, assuming they all check out okay mm-hmm. together, or is there a limit on that size? Well, we look at, we look at natural chimp um, group sizes and behavior as sort of a, a metric for us. It's not necessarily the perfect metric because they're living in the wild and, and have all kinds of different pressures on them. But in the wild, you would see a, a group of 20 or 30 who are pretty closely bonded. And quite a few of those will come together into a community of up to 100. So you, they don't necessarily all kind of run together, but, but they all know each other. And at times, they'll they'll kind of be together and then they split off. It's called uh, fission fusion. So that's what we're aiming for with Project Chimps is somewhere groups around 20 or so but ultimately, in the in the very big picture, um, aiming for a, a shared habitat space that we can sort of mimic if if it works. Wow. Um, the fission fusion kind of idea. And then what happens as that group grows of those sort of checked out pairs, and then you try to do mimic the the, the sounds like the large size group that would often exist in the wild. Now, what happens to the uh, the crazy guy or the royal guy or the guy who doesn't get along? Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes that happens. And um, so we have sort of contingencies in place so that there will always be sort of a special needs area or building or, um, you know, set of spaces so that everyone, no matter no matter what their social skills are and what their needs are, will be able to meet them to, to the best the best we can in, in captivity. Um, so you always have to plan for, you know, escape artists or, um, you know, the, the social um, socially clueless uh, chimps who aren't going to necessarily make friends easily. Sometimes they can learn that stuff, um, and and you see that in some sanctuaries where you just give them enough chance and they'll they'll get the idea eventually. But sometimes they don't, and a lot of that happens because they're in captivity. At least they're very often not raised with their mothers, so they don't learn sort of the natural rules that that mom would teach you. Ah, uh, okay. So do some of those special needs chimps end up connecting with each other? in part maybe because they have some of the same yeah that happens sometimes for sure where you'll get a pair and um then at least you know that they have somebody um and you know if they can can keep each other happy then that's great so that sounds like a pretty amazing experience and yet you reached the end of your five years where you thought okay for this reason another family related reasons it's time to move on and then what was the next step? I'm pretty sure there was at least one or more interim steps between that yeah. and then landing at Project Chimps. <clears throat> yeah, I took a job um, running the North American Primate Sanctuary Alliance, which is um, a mouthful that we call NAPSA. I helped form it when I was still at Chimpanzee Sanctuary Northwest. We, we founded it, um, six of us or seven of us who were directors of Chimpanzee Sanctuary founded it with the idea that we sort of saw some policy changes and political changes on the horizon for chimps. And we were this, at that time, uh, you know, a small community of professional experts who are providing care for chimpanzees. 
And we wanted to kind of align around these policy changes we saw coming and really kind of set the bar high in terms of standards of care and, you know, being willing to provide sanctuary for any chimps in the U.S. who need somewhere to go. So I I <clears throat> took a job running that alliance for, I think it was almost two years, um, and just kind of working with the sanctuary community, building it, adding members, bringing in, uh, we had started with just chimpanzee sanctuaries, but we very quickly brought in sanctuaries with all kinds of other primates as well and worked to um, kind of, it, it almost functioned as an industry group. So if there was some issue that one of our members would, would were facing, then we could all respond together. And so was one of the ideas there to kind of promote like a consistency of protocols and policies and treatments and things just because it's a pretty unusual world to be in. To, to be yes. running a chimp sanctuary or a primate yep. sanctuary. So so I would just think there'd be yeah. a lot of comparing notes and then saying, well, we found this and then, oh, that's great. And maybe we should impose exactly. that policy. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a desire to kind of help people avoid having to reinvent the wheel. If there's some new policy or some issue that, you know, someone hadn't confronted before, you could say to your peers in the community, what do you do about this, you know, PTO or, you know, just whatever. Um, and then um, we also did set a, a list of criteria for membership, which which required sort of by by virtue of those requirements that um, that the standards of care would be really high at our members. So it's also a way for the public to kind of distinguish between um, between a, a facility that might say it's a sanctuary, but may not provide the best quality of care and a facility that, that really is going above and beyond to meet all of the, the um, those standards that we set. What are some of the key criteria that people would need to look for or be aware of that constitutes a, a legitimate sanctuary, especially in this case a, a legitimate ch- chamber primate sanctuary? Well, we uh, sort of hung our hat on GFAS, which is the Global Federation of Animal Sanctuaries, which is an accrediting body. Um, and they, they set standards for all different types of species, but they also set standards in terms of um, sort of the nonprofit side, the business side of things, okay. which I think is often missed and you often will see someone who has a lot of passion and care and and wonder about a particular species or or lots of species or animals in general um, but not necessarily have the business side of things figured out to support their care and that's yeah. really sustainability is a vital importance in the sanctuary community because if we you know if we go under we have all these mouths to feed. Um, so that's one one thing is sort of just looking at the sustainability and are you planning ahead? Are you, you know, do you have systems in place to re- replace a founder or, you know, a central key person, mm-hmm. things like that on the business side. And then on the, on the sanctuary side and the care side, it's, you know, it's things like not breeding because, uh, you know, even the best possible sanctuary for chimpanzees will never meet their needs in, in captivity. It's just not possible. So our philosophy is we don't breed. We don't want any more in this essentially prison. It's a great prison, we like to think, but it's still a prison. Um, and then no selling of animals, no bringing them out for parties or you know fundraising events, things like that. And, and that brings me to a question that I think it seems like even with very respected sanctuaries, sometimes there's a little difference in, in this realm. What is the policy either of NAPSA or GFAS about having some, even if it's very limited, but some public contact versus zero public contact? Well, I think, I, I know in the primate community, and I think across the board, contact, physical contact is, is a no-no. Um, but there are, there are ways to do sort of public education and opportunities to view and interact with the residents that okay. are not, you know, are not harmful. So I, that, that's definitely a possibility. And I think that's changed over the last 
10 or 15 years where previously there was this sort of attitude that sanctuaries needed to be completely closed to the public and no one could ever set foot on on the property, otherwise you're a zoo. Um, but I think there there has been in the last 10 years for sure sort of a more of an openness to kind of guided public education opportunities. And I what I often raise on this topic with, with chimp sanctuaries at least is the chimps who we take care of have been raised around humans their whole lives. Yeah. They often see humans as social partners. So they get a lot out of, you know, seeing new people. Um, and as long as there are ways for them to kind of hide out if they don't want to be seen and, and things like that, then then it can be done perfectly safely yeah. and, and fine in the sanctuary world. Um, as far as physical contact, I, I don't think with the primate community, at least anyone's doing that in a yeah. in a safe way. And most of that's safety. It's, you know, it's public health and for sure. chimps especially are much stronger than us, as I said, and they don't have a lot to do in captivity, and um, so an, an injury would be could be really severe. And of course, the the chimp would be uh, the one who loses big in that case. Yeah, I probably I didn't necessarily I wasn't the most best chosen word. I probably meant more like access than contact. But yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess what you're yeah. Saying. But I mean, some of this too, and that shift of attitude seems to dovetail in some ways with something you were mentioning earlier, which is sometimes just as long as it's well done and, and the animal is protected and safe and has choices, whatever. It seems like some of this does hook into a uh, fundraising element just mm-hmm. you know because again there's uh, a lot of mouths to feed a lot of things you know enclosures to fix and maintain or whatever exactly on, on and on and on so as long as you're still not in zoo territory by by quite a distance it seems like a lot of these facilities that are quite highly respected saying okay in a limited way limited time mm-hmm. number of times a year whatever yes you are invited to come see under these kind of strict rules and this will cost you x amount of dollars and everybody kind right. of wins yeah and i i think as long as I, I think the key for us at least is is that the those visits or, or observations are guided so that you can interpret the you know the behavior that you're seeing for the visitors and vice versa and you can sort of be sensitive to whether some some chimp or you know sanctuary resident is letting you know that they're not happy and and that's the bottom line for us is the the residents always come first and um you know as long as as long as people know and understand and appreciate that then um, there are plenty of ways to to meet a chimp and and be safe and respectful about it this is talking animals i'm duncan Strauss. my guest is sarah beckler davis a primatologist and lawyer who's the ceo of project chimps a relatively new chimpanzee sanctuary in northern georgia this conversation was recorded on december 16th so sarah i heard you speak at a conference recently and one of the themes of the talk a minor theme but a theme nonetheless was your profound reluctance to launch a new chimp sanctuary yet (laughs) spoiler alert if it's not too late for that you did launch a new sanctuary project chimp so can you speak to why you were reluctant to re-enter that world you already mentioned earlier that you're kind of your personality and business type and 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 sensibility often is leans towards launching new things why were you not so keen on doing this and what factor or set of factors kind of penetrated that reluctance? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely said I wasn't going to do it again after Chim Sanctuary Northwest. And um, with, with NAPSA, I, um, I thought that was sort of a, a great happy medium for me in, in terms of being able to work with sanctuaries, but not being really linked to the day-to-day because it is, it's gut-wrenching work in many ways. It's very expensive, especially for chimpanzees. So it's a lot of fundraising required. It's a lot of stress. Um, and, you you know, again, you have all these lives on your hands, essentially. So I, through NAPSA, I had this sort of routine of reaching out to um, people who had chimps who might, you know, it might be on the horizon that they might, might no longer have them anymore. And um, I had sent a letter to the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, which has the New Iberia Research Center. 
And I, because we knew all these changes, as I mentioned, were sort of on the horizon for chimps and that the government was really moving to um, to stop funding any research, any invasive medical research on chimpanzees. So there were these populations of chimps in the U.S. who we knew were really going to need somewhere to go. And so on behalf of our members, I would reach out and say, here's NAPSA. You know, these are the standards that our members follow. If you ever would like to learn more, let me know. And um, that letter that went to the University of Louisiana resulted in a, a phone call immediately back and a request for a meeting. And I went there for a meeting and, and toured the facility and um, brought an attorney with me, the attorney actually who had initially inspired me to go to law school, who I still work with. And um, they said, we would love to retire all of our chimps and we would like to work with you. And at, at the time, there were 230 chimps there. And we had a population of maybe at most 500 or so in the sanctuary community across seven or eight sanctuaries. Wow. So a, a big number. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I toured the, the facility. I saw the chimps there. I met all the the people there, and I I knew I had to do something, and so I went back to our members and said, "Who wants 230 chimps?" <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I joke in retrospect now that not surprisingly, no one jumped up and down and said, "Pick me, pick me." Um, but I um, I just couldn't I couldn't let go of the idea that there were these chimps sitting there in Louisiana, and they could be in sanctuary, they could be, you know, having a very different life. And knowing that, knowing that opportunity there, I just couldn't, I couldn't let go of the idea that someone needed to do something and sort of having exhausted the option in front of me, I, I reluctantly thought, all right, well, I guess I have to do it. Um, and yeah. so that began the process of, of starting Project Chimps really around that partnership with yeah. Liberia. Well, one thing, I think one key factor in that narrative in sensing to start a new sanctuary or just realizing, hey, these 230 chimps kind of need this, and so therefore I guess I have to step up. Uh, as I recall, a key part of that was that there was a pre-existing sanctuary facility that, that just needed more to be kind of modified and yeah. spruced up versus built from scratch, which seemed like kind of a huge factor in your sanctuary. Yeah, okay, and, I, that, and I, I, exactly. I never would have proceeded, probably, I would have worked much harder to convince others to, to take it on and, and um, just started knocking on everyone's doors until they, they got annoyed at me and, and gave in. But yeah. um, there was this facility in North Georgia, which we have since purchased, uh, which was designed as a sanctuary for gorillas. And through the course of its um, development, the need for gorilla sanctuary really diminished to the point where it wasn't really in use anymore. And it's an incredible facility with millions of dollars in infrastructure already there and, and things that, you know, would make me crazy to have to start from scratch on like roads and fences and, you know, just just the really basic, you know, digging in the dirt stuff that has to happen before you can have a facility. Yeah. So all of that stuff was done here. And um, the, the, the buildings weren't completed. There were two, two habitat builds or two villas, we call them, that had housed gorillas previously. So there were two that were fully complete. The rest are sort of in still in various states of completion, although we've done a lot of renovating and are, are um, getting them finished so that we can start bringing more and more chimps in. But that made a big difference. So there's a yeah. kitchen and an office and two residences on the property so staff can have somewhere to be and 
and that kind of stuff, which um, which was huge for us. So then how many thus far, given that some of those villas still need to be completed, how many of those 230 chimps uh, live there now? So we have 16 so far. Okay. <laughs> We've had two two groups, and I, I'm exhausted just saying that out loud, but um, we're, we just started accepting chimps in September of this year, so we're really um, right at the beginning of this project. Right, and I guess harking back to what we talked about earlier in this conversation, that it's painstaking process. You can't just say, okay, we got this great facility, you speak gorillas, it's all fixed up now, and just back up the truck Throw and bring all two, 230 in, and let's uh, hope for the best. I mean, it, I, I, so I guess you just conduct those sort of pairing things and get other things prepared and then bring whatever amount exactly. that, that allows and then just chip away at the 230 over time. Yep, that's that's exactly the plan. So how are these chimps thus far? I mean, it sounds like they're just relatively new new residents and new new therefore to you probably. I mean, what you know? Do yeah, you... they're they're doing great. We're you know beyond thrilled to have them. And the the first group who arrived in September was a group of nine females. Um, and there's two there's a set of twins and a set of sisters. So they're they're wow. pretty bonded and they. They moved as a group, so they knew each other in Louisiana, and you know we're we're keeping those bonds together with us. Um, and they are um, maybe three months in now. We're at about that point, and they are um, changing every day. Still, sort of getting more comfortable, letting us know more than ever, um, you know, whether they're happy or not happy about something. We're offering them or doing with them. And then the other, the second group is just two weeks with us now and they're males and they're seven and I I went on that trip with them so I sort of shepherded them from um from Louisiana to Georgia and um so I got to see really firsthand what their you know what their story was from from moment zero with us and um they're incredible and they're for whatever reason they're um I think settling in a little faster the the boys are Hmm. and um are playful and um eager to to you know play chase with us and and things like that so they're doing great and is that group of males are any siblings included no there aren't any siblings in the male group okay Um, there are a lot of family relationships in the population so we will have you know there was a lot of breeding at this facility sort of during the time where we where we thought that chimps were going to be a really good model for research yeah so there's a ton of mothers and their children and all kinds of family relationships. And yeah. we'll, we'll look at that and, and try to put some families back together if we can in the big picture. Yeah, well, it even made me wonder when you described the, the first group, the female group, when you said there was a, a set of twins and, and sisters, that I wondered if part of what goes into figuring out, okay, who of, of the 230 is going to represent the first group or two, are you looking for family relationships? Because if, generally, at least I would assume you'd think, okay, well, these... These, these get along, they're already kind of connected, so in terms of the pairing test and some other stuff, we already have a little bit of a jump. Yeah, so we, we have their histories in terms of who they've been paired with in the past and, and things like that. And then what what we're doing now is just moving them in the groups that they're in already. So oh, I see. we wanna okay. you know, we wanna make sure that they that the bonds they do have that we don't disrupt those, especially at a, a right. you know, at a point where a move can be incredibly stressful just in itself. So we're keeping those groups together and then um, going from there once on site. Okay, so these groups like the nine females and the, and the, and the seven males, I mean, they already live together in Louisiana, so you're just bringing Correct. them intact as a group and then kind of building from there as testing and yeah. circumstances uh, yeah. allow. And just a couple of years ago, um, 
trying to think it was three or four years ago now, the, um, the NIH made the decision to, n- to no longer fund any research on chimps, as yeah. I mentioned. So yeah. this, this population and, and quite a few others really haven't been used in research in, in a number of years, and they're, they're housed. Um, and almost certainly for our population, they're all socially housed, so they're all in groups. Um, in some facilities, that may not be the case, but in, in this particular case, they're, they're in groups and they've essentially just sort of been waiting for the next move. And then presumably, I would guess, also probably less traumatized than some earlier groups. Yeah, I think, I think the fact that they've been bonded and together for a couple of years and really haven't been subjected to research in the past couple of years um, yeah. really helps for, yeah. for their well-being, for sure. Yeah. So we're just sort of in the last moment or two of our time here, Sarah, but when someone first visits the Project Chimps website, which I should mention quickly, is simply projectchimps.org, the splash page, uh, when you get there, you see some very cool imagery and the phrase, making unprecedented advances for chimpanzees. Now, that seems like kind of a bold, confident statement. <laughs> so, so how would you characterize those unprecedented advances? What are they? Well, you know, we are, um, I am proud to say that we are a part of really being able to say that research, privately funded research on chimps is over. So we will, once we have this population moved, um, we will be able to say that, um, <clears throat> that we, that the research on chimps is finished and we are very proud of playing a role in that. So that's really what that that refers to is just sort of yeah i mean it's a it's a time we haven't known at least in my career history where um it's private and public so the government got out of the business the the private funders are now are out of the business as well and it's it's over and we we don't get those opportunities very often i think in in the animal protection world where you can just say we did it um but but we can in this in this case so one final question i guess sarah that i almost feel uh compelled to ask is, so with all this great work you've done over the years, how, what kind of contact have you had with the woman who set this all in motion uh, all those years ago when you were an eight-year-old reading that book, Jane Goodall? <laughs> I, I am um, very honored and humbled to say that I've worked with her a bunch of times over the years, yeah. and um, it, it, I never stopped pinching myself when it happened, but she, she worked, uh, she introduced me actually when we did a press conference about uh, my undercover work, and gave me a big hug in front of a whole lot of people, which, you know, I thought was the most amazing thing ever. Um, and she supports this project as well. So um, she's she's an amazing force for, yeah. for chimps and animals in general. Cool. And you're in her in her company then as a result. So yeah. That's, that's yeah. Great. I like they're, to think so. Very <laughs> cool. All right. Well, we've been speaking with Sarah Beckler-Davis, again, the president and CEO of Project Chimps. One more time, the website is projectchimps.org, and you can see some of the cool chimps that are living there now. At the moment, when we're recording this. Marlin is the featured chimp, but I'm sure that shifts every uh, period of time. But uh, it's good to get to know Marlin, uh, as I did at least last night. So, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Our thanks again to Sarah Beckler-Davis. Well, the nice interview. Enjoyed speaking with her a lot. A really interesting story, I think. Hopefully you did, too. Right now, it's time to step into the comedy corner, extending our chimp theme just a bit further. This is Kevin Nealon with a piece called Chimp Fear in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals. I used to be afraid of sharks, but not anymore. I'm not afraid of... I'm not afraid of... Well, actually, you know what? I take that back. I'm afraid of chimps. Chimpanzees. 
I mean, have you been reading about these horrific chimp attacks? I'm not talking about the cute little chimpanzees with the sweater vest and the uh, suspenders. I'm talking about the big strength of four grown men, chimpanzees. And I don't know how they measure that, four grown men. Maybe they start with one grown man. You know, hey, get, get in the cage with that chimp. Let's see who's stronger. Whoa, whoa! Okay, two grown men. Hurry up, two grown men, two grown men. You know, until they get to four. And it costs six lives for that study. I hope they wrote it down. I hope they have it written down somewhere. But yeah, these chimps, and call them chimps, not pansies. They don't like that. But they rip your face off, and then they go for the crotch. They, they, that's, what, that's their MO. It's in a Chimp 101 handbook. That's what they do. They get your jaw out so you can't bite them, and then they go for the crotch. I guess so you can't sex them or something. I don't know what they're thinking. But... Um, yeah, it is not good. So now, when I go swimming in the ocean, I have to watch out for sharks and chimpanzees. I don't want to be too close to the shore where the chimp can reach in and pull me out, but I don't want to be too far out where the sharks are or where she had further out where the Somalian pirates are. You see, for me, when I stand in front of the ocean, there's different spheres of fear for me. It's the chimp, shark, Somalian pirates, and North Korea, further out, North Korea. <laughs> different spheres of fear. But let me tell you something. At least with a shark attack, it's quick. You know, it just pulls you down. There's no drama. Hey, well, that's all your friends are going to hear, if that. They're like, where's Kevin? I don't know. I think he's at the snack bar. Throw me the Frisbee, Jack. But with a chimpanzee attack, can you imagine the horror? It probably sneaks up behind you on a little tricycle. Then at the last minute, the horn on the handlebar, eh, eh, and then boom, face crotch. And then they fling the feces at you. That's, what they, that's how they tidy it all up. They fling the feces at you. And if that doesn't do it, they back over you with that tricycle a couple of times, you know? And you can't play dead with a chimpanzee because they see right through that. They just get angry because you're a bad actor. That's not dead. I'll show you dead. But who do you play dead with? You know, who, I guess bears. Bears... But for how long? How long when they're batting you against the rock like a salmon? When you finally go, okay, already, I'm not dead. All right, take it easy. You don't play dead with a vulture because that's what they want. They want you dead. They'll be pecking at your face and ripping pieces of meat off. They don't care. You don't play dead with a possum, that's for sure. You waste the time, you'll both be on the street. Are you dead? I'm dead too. Yeah, we're both dead. Oh, oh, I saw you move your tail. I saw you move your tail. You're not dead. You're not dead. <laughs> In some animals, they say, make yourself look big. You know, size-wise, not important-wise. Like, hey, don't you know who I am? You don't know who I am? I could have your job. Don't you understand that? So, yeah, that's all scary. Those are close calls right there. That was Kevin Nealon with a piece called Chimp Fear from his album entitled Whelms but not overly. Coming up at 11 on WMNF, it's Rob Lorai and Radioactivity. Rolling into the noon hour, it constitutes a full two hours of interviews, phone calls, news, and more, with contributions from members of the stellar WMNF staff, including, of course, Everyday Ethics with Craig Kopp. Meanwhile, is the prize for Name That Animal Tune, which we'll be doing by email today, not phone. I'll be offering a Talking Animals t-shirt. Right now, let's hit a couple of quick animal announcements, maybe a news, but certainly some announcements, including that Animal-Based Charities wants to uh, give you a heads up that their Barkerilla 
2017 fundraiser is coming up January 7th. That's going to take place in Ybor City from noon to 5 p.m. And the all-important parade gets underway at 2.30 p.m. So you can join animal-based charities for that. And there'll be all kinds of cool things happening. It's going to be at Mady's at a Dirty Shame in Ybor City. And uh, there'll be entertainment by Mr. Bones, vendors, food trucks, great raffle baskets, 50-50 raffles, and more. Of course, the dogs are welcome at no charge. Humans, just a bit more than that. And all the uh, proceeds benefit animal-based charities who, of course, provide adoption venues for rescue groups and do all kinds of other great things for animal groups in the greater Tampa Bay area. So check out animal-based charities for more information on that. Also down the road, but uh, it's coming into big event season. The Humane Society of Pinellas wants you to know about uh, Pet Fest 2017 happening February 4th, 2017 from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. And there'll be pet adoptions, vendors, and more. That's taking place at 20 Carillion Parkway in St. Petersburg. And there'll be all kinds of cool events beyond those mentioned. So you can find out more about that by going to humanesocietyofpinellas.org. I'm Duncan Strauss. You are listening to Talking Animals, where the show website is talkinganimals.net. It's time to proceed to name that animal team, which again today we're doing by email versus our customary approach by phone. This is a giveaway, but please only participate if you haven't won something from WNF in the last 90 days. And there'll be a prize, a Talking Animals t-shirt, to the first person who emails. Again, email your answer to Duncan at WMNF.org. And the first person who does so correctly with the correct answer, naming that animal song, We'll get the t-shirt. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals. No regrets, Coyote. We just come from such different sets of circumstance. I'm up all night in the studios and you're up early on your ranch. You'll be brushing out a broodmare's tail while the sun is ascending. And I'll just be getting home with my real to real. There's no comprehending just how close to the bone and the skin and the eyes and the lips you can get. And still feel so alone and still feel related. Like stations in some relay, you're not a, a hit and run driver, no, no. Have a hitcher, prisoner around the white lines on the freeway. Can you name that animal tune? I think you probably can. Again, if you're the first to do so by emailing Duncan at WNF.org, you will get uh, yourself a nice Talking Animals t shirt by way of a prize. We have just about reached the end of today's edition. Of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. Rob Laura is up next with what amounts to two hours of radioactivity. I will not be back next Wednesday, January 4th. I'll be out of town, but my good friend Bev Capshaw will be sitting in. She's hosted Talking Animals in my absence uh, once or twice a year for a number of years. Probably no Bev, but big animal lover and uh, Pitbull advocate, really nice. I know you'll love her if you haven't heard her host Talking Animals in the past. 
Meanwhile, please visit TalkingAnimals.net where you can find audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast, iTunes podcast as well. We also have a link to the Talking Animals Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and more. Please like us on Facebook. And sure, it'd be great to uh, like the show, but uh, almost better if you friend me personally. There's just more action, Talking Animals related and otherwise there. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. And all that can be done, well, except follow me personally. All the rest can be done on the Talking Animals website at TalkingAnimals.net. You can also subscribe there to our newsletter, our little weekly uh, email newsletter, to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand and other scintillating news from the Talking Animals world. That's all found, again, at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. As usual, we're closing out today's show with an animal song, sort of, and that it's of the instrumental variety. This is Miles Davis with his version of Bye Bye Blackbird on Talking Animals on WMNF, Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. Thanks for listening. Speak to you in two weeks directly, and you'll catch up with Bev next week on Talking Animals on WMF. Thanks. Mm-hmm. <laughs>